World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. An army might march on its stomach, but its tanks still roll on fossil fuels. We examine the largely overlooked or unreported climate contributions of the world's armed forces and what's being done to slim them down. And the world of popular music has been shaped in part by what you might call serendipity, or you could just call it accident. We listen through the history of innovators who created new sounds, whole new genres of music, unintentionally. But first... Protests in Colombia continued overnight after more than a week of clashes. Rioters have looted shops, burned buses and police stations, and blocked major roads, leading to shortages of medicines and groceries in Cali, Colombia's third largest city. The government has responded violently, deploying the army against them. Dozens of people are dead or missing. Hundreds more have been injured. President Ivan Duque has said he will listen to the protesters' concerns, but their fury with him seems only to be growing. And Gustavo Petro, a hard-left senator who's leading polls to be Mr. Duque's successor in next year's election, is encouraging people to demonstrate. Thousands have come out to the streets in opposition to a tax reform bill that the government sent to Congress in mid-April. That's what triggered the protest. Mariana Palau writes about Colombia for The Economist. But as of the last few days, they've come to include a broader set of issues, mostly about the economy. But there's also a lot of resentment against President Ivan Duque. Well, let's start with the tax reform that kicked things off. What was in that legislation? Well, it sought to increase tax revenue for the government. So it would have done a lot of things that economists have long pleaded the government to do. For example, it would have removed many VAT exemptions, which mostly benefit the rich. It would have increased the number of people paying income tax. It would have even taxed pensions, which aren't taxed right now in Colombia. Spending on social programs would have increased dramatically. It would have been the biggest increase in social spending in Colombia's history. And the truth is that the reform was badly needed because Colombia, because of the pandemic, its deficit has tripled to about 8% of GDP. And at this rate, public debt could become unmanageable to around 108% of GDP in 10 years. And if the government isn't able to increase revenue somehow, it could face a downgrade in its credit rating. And why did the proposal get such a strong reaction? 
Well, most Colombians saw it as unfair because Colombia has gone through one of the longest lockdowns in the world and people are really struggling financially. So just to give you a sense, we recently saw statistics that at least 2.8 million fell into extreme poverty last year alone. And more than 500,000 businesses have closed. So even though tax increases would have hit the wealthiest the hardest, 80% of the population are opposed to the bill. And, you know, the government eventually recognized how unpopular it was. And last Sunday, Mr. Duque withdrew the bill. And the next day, the finance minister, Alberto Carrasquilla, resigned. But that didn't put an end to things. People are still out protesting. Absolutely. In fact, after Mr. Duque withdrew the reform, the protests seemed to have gotten more violent. Colombians seem to be very frustrated with Mr. Duque and his government. His approval rating is around 33%. They're frustrated with security, for example. Mr. Duque promised to make the country safer as a presidential candidate. But actually, violence seems to be getting worse. In 2016, the government of Juan Manuel Santos, Mr. Duque's predecessor, signed a deal with the FARC, the country's largest rebel army. But other armed groups have been growing stronger since 2016, and they are driving a growing number of rural people away from their homes and they are murdering hundreds of local leaders. I must also say that Colombians blame the government for mishandling the pandemic. Only around 7% of the population has received at least one shot of the vaccine. And there's also a growing sense of anger at the government's response to the protests themselves. How so? How has the government responded? Well, the government has used excessive force. An armored vehicle was filmed in Bogota firing live ammunition in a residential neighborhood. Towards the beginning of the protest, the president refused to consider talking to the protest leaders and blamed the protest on organized left-wing criminals. However, this week, Mr. Duque has changed his mind and he has set up a forum of national dialogue, that's what he calls it, where the government will meet protesters and other civil groups. But... The protesters' demands have grown longer since Mr. Duque announced this. They include withdrawing a health reform bill from Congress, introducing a guaranteed minimum income, and to force eradication of coca crops, you know, among many, many other things. These are very big demands, and it's looking very unlikely that the protesters will leave the streets anytime soon or that they will reach any kind of agreement in this forum for national dialogue that Mr. Duque has set up. And in that sense, do you think this protest movement could be a threat to to Mr. Duque's leadership? Very much so. Politically, Mr. Duque looks very weak right now. Unlike his predecessors, he does not really have a stable majority coalition in Congress. He doesn't even control his own party. That party is led by his mentor, Alvaro Uribe. He's a former president, and he has distanced himself from Mr. Duque. He was one of the first to speak out against the bill. Colombia is about a year out from elections. So Gustavo Petro in particular has been very active in trying to encourage the protesters to come out to the streets. He has proposed things like the central bank printing more money to deal with the aftermath of the pandemic. And he has also praised the late Hugo Chavez, the despotic socialist president who set Venezuela on a path to ruin. This tax reform, which was very bold, was supposed to be Mr. Duque's legacy, but it may turn out instead that his legacy is ensuring that Colombia gets its first socialist president with Mr. Petro. Mariana, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. For all the discussions on the costs and benefits of deploying armed forces, one bit of accounting rarely gets done. The environmental impact. As countries update their pledges ahead of the UN's COP26 climate meeting this year, some forces seem willing at last to address their own contributions. It's a welcome change, but they have a lot of catching up to do. Militaries and armed forces around the world release a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions. Rachel Dobbs writes for The Economist. But there has been very little oversight or acknowledgement of that in recent decades. And that lack of oversight means that regulation has been lacking. So there has been little cohesive pressure to make militaries more green. But what is the the scale of the problem here relative to the the whole nation's output, say? Well, it's difficult to tell because of the under-reporting and inconsistent reporting that goes on. That means that the numbers that governments give tend to be inaccurate. But various groups have tried to estimate the level of greenhouse gas emissions that individual countries' armed forces put out. So, for example, a research group found that the British Ministry of Defence emissions were around three times higher than they reported. And the level of emissions that we're talking about here can be absolutely enormous, particularly for America. The Pentagon, which oversees all of the armed forces, is thought to be the largest institutional consumer of petroleum products in the world. And a 2019 paper published by a political scientist at Boston University found that America's armed forces emitted 59 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent in 2017, which is more than the total of emissions from all sources and sectors for the whole of Switzerland in the same year. And why is it there has been such little reporting and misreporting permitted on this? So it's been an ongoing historical problem. When the Kyoto Protocol, which was adopted by the United Nations in 1997, was signed, and that was the first international treaty to commit countries to slashing their greenhouse gas emissions, there was a specific exemption granted for countries' armed forces. That was granted at the request of America because it was argued that having to calculate their emissions and make them public would create pressures to curtail military activities, which they said, create a security risk. And that exemption was then granted, so no one was obliged to calculate or report the greenhouse gases for their armed forces. And then when the Paris Agreement came in in 2015, that automatic exemption was taken away, but the signatories were let to decide for themselves how much of their military emissions they would report, whether they would report them grouped in with other emissions, and the numbers that we tend to have are sort of grouped weirdly with other bits of government expenditure and also tend to exclude the action of armed forces overseas, which is where most of them operate. And aside from emissions proper, what are the downsides of, of all of that energy consumption for armed forces? Well, General Petraeus, who was the former director of America's CIA, called energy the lifeblood of our warfighting capabilities which basically means that armed forces run almost entirely on energy, and that reliance can create severe security risks and threaten missions. 
So if you're using a lot of fossil fuels, you have to transport those fuels to remote bases. That typically requires very long convoys of military vehicles, which are very vulnerable to enemy attack. Between 2001 and 2010, half of American casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan occurred during land transport missions, many of which were to do with the delivery of fuel to remote bases. And those downsides could be mitigated if you started using renewable energy sources at bases, which some militaries have started to do in pursuit of operational stability. Fossil fuels are also very expensive, and reliance on fossil fuels also creates another problem as consumer and civilian markets transition towards greener technologies, armed forces are eventually going to be forced to follow suit. They don't want to be the only people who are using a combustion engine in 20 years' time. And you say there are some moves underway to kind of green these armies? Yeah. In recent years, many Western armies have been looking much more heavily into electric vehicles and renewable energy sources. Some are starting to experiment with new fuels for aviation So the Dutch Ministry of Defence is phasing in biofuels and now uses them to power all of their F-16 Fighting Falcon jets in one of their bases. America is also looking at biofuels for planes and for ships. In March, the Pentagon set up a climate working group, which followed on from an executive order made by President Biden, elevating climate change to a national security priority. Also, the British Ministry of Defence published its Climate Change and Stability report, and Jens Stoltenberg, who is the Secretary-General of NATO, recently announced that he wants the Alliance members to pledge at a summit later this year that they will make their armies carbon neutral by 2050, which would mean that they have to accurately record and report those emissions, and NATO is currently developing a methodology to try and do this. So do you think armies are trying to clean up their act purely because of the, the climate impact or, or is it in part because of those other risks and costs from fossil fuels? There are a few reasons why militaries are increasingly moving in this direction. One is that they are very aware of the risks that a climate changed world will have for them and the ways that it will change the environments in which they fight. It will change the humanitarian relief that they have to offer people. There's a lot more worry about whether or not melting ice in the Arctic will introduce new geopolitical risks. And also, there is an added pressure that the public and new recruits who might consider going into the armed forces increasingly really care about climate change. And it is in military's interests to be seen to be doing something about it. Thanks very much for joining us, Rachel. Thanks, Jason. Playing an instrument well takes years of practice. And during those years, aspiring musicians can expect to make lots of mistakes. Even the best players don't always get the sound that they intend. Sometimes, though, those slip-ups and surprises can be the mother of invention. People go to great lengths to stop accidents happening in everyday life. They tend to think that things happening without being predicted is a bad thing. Michael Hahn writes about culture for The Economist. But in music, human error has on occasion yielded brilliant results. Whole new styles of music and genres have come about through happy accidents. If you look at the history of rock and pop, there are tons of styles that came about as a result of happenstance. In 1964, Dave Davies of the Kinks inadvertently invented the distorted sound of heavy metal guitar. He was angry and frustrated, and he took a knife to the speaker cone of his amplifier. It made the guitar sound unhinged because it was so distorted. 
Now, an electric guitar put through an amplifier will normally create a fairly clean sound. You can hear the notes. You can hear the sound the guitar is meant to make. Distortion, which has become a very valued effect, makes everything sound different. It distorts the original tone of the guitar. And on You Really Got Me, that distortion was intense and brutal and rough and fuzzy. It didn't sound like it was meant to be music. It sounded like it was meant to be a fist fight in a studio. A few years after the Kinks, Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath lost two fingertips on his right hand in an industrial accident. He made false fingertips using the plastic from washing up liquid bottles and carried on playing guitar. The problem was he couldn't actually bend the strings on a conventional tuning, so he down-tuned the guitar, which meant he could now bend the strings with his false fingertips. And the down-tuned guitar created something new and heavy and doomy that had never been heard before. You can hear that doomy sound that Tony Iommi pioneered on scores of Sabbath tracks, but... If I were to go for one, I'd say Wheels of Confusion from Black Sabbath Volume 4. It's not always about having new tones and sounds. Sometimes it can be about simple incompetence. One of the great breakthroughs in metal came 40 years ago this spring, when Venom released their first single, In League with Satan, which more or less single-handedly invented extreme metal. They didn't do that on purpose. They just were terrible instrumentalists and they were recording in an awfully cheap studio. And scores of bands since then have tried to recreate something similar to that deliberately. People generally thought Venom were evil rather than being a bunch of chancers from the Newcastle suburbs. Dub reggae was another happy accident. The engineer at a session for King Tubby forgot to add the vocal track to a song that he was working on. However, that instrumental track was played at a dance a few days later and the crowd loved it. 40 years earlier, Louis Armstrong popularised scat singing when he dropped the sheet music while recording the song Heebie-Jeebies. He carried on singing nonsense syllables and that was the take that was released. Now, scat had existed before, but it was Louis Armstrong doing it that turned it into a mass art form. Technology, of course, has always driven music. Usually that's deliberate, but it's not always by design. And the classic example would probably be the Technics SL1200 turntable, without which hip-hop would have been impossible. The turntable's designer, Shuichi Obata, had put in a couple of things that were absolutely crucial, one of which was the pitch control slider, which enabled people to beat match and made modern DJing where one track rolls into another possible. But the other was that the turntable was direct drive rather than a belt, which made possible scratching and backspinning while still getting the record back to speed. If you listen to, say, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, you can hear the possibilities of the SL1200. Another technological thing, which was partly the result of accident and partly the result of design, was the Roland TR-808 drum machine, which had its distinctive sound that's always described as sizzling, which came from a defective transistor. Only 12,000 Roland TR-808s got made. They ran out of the faulty transistors. Music aficionados often complain that every style has been mastered, that there is nowhere left for rock and pop to go. But that ignores the possibilities of accidents. 
someone somewhere is putting the wrong component in the wrong piece of equipment in a factory, that will come out and suddenly a new sound will become apparent or some new possibility will open up. And who knows, that could be the birth of a new style of music. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Hannah Mourinho, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin, with extra help this week from Emily Elias. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. All of them will see you back here on Monday. As for me, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.